Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm on the South Island's west coast, standing in a field of a deer farm that backs onto the bush. And Olivia Peter-Slim is showing me the three readings from a final stop test of a newly fitted seismic sensor. So there are like these three spikes. These are the three masses on the three different directions. And we can see the steps on the three channels, which is good. That's what we're looking for. And the sensor is working good. Everything great. looks great. So, success. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerkin Cannon Thernay. Today we join a team from Victoria University of Wellington as they install a seismic sensor on the Alpine Fault. This is just one of a planned 55 sensors to be installed as part of the Southern Alps Long Skinny Array. Dubbed SALSA, this is a series of seismic sensors that will be about 10 kilometres apart and placed on the fault line between Maruya to Milford Sound. The overall aim is to listen in on the background hum of this fault to better understand what a slip on any point will mean in terms of ground shaking further afield. The Alpine Fault is the on-land boundary of the Pacific and Australian plates a fault line that runs for over 600 kilometres, where these plates rub against each other as the Australian plate moves northeast and the Pacific plate slides southwest. Underground, the Pacific plate rides up over the Australian plate and ruptures in uplift across time has formed the Southern Alps. And that is why the team and I are in a rubbly backfield near Fataroa, not too far off State Highway 6, looking up at steep bush-clad mountains. So nearby here, the mountains begin. We go from relatively flat land to the mountains. And that contact between that flat land and the mountains is default. Mm. So, yeah, the east of here is being pushed up relative to where we're stood now. It's actually a lot more obvious in satellite photos. You can really see it very, very clearly through here. So we're standing on the Australian plate then? Yeah, essentially. This is Dr. Finn Isley-Kemp. Um, so I'm Finn, I'm a postdoc at Victoria University. Um, I'm a seismologist. Um, most of the time I work on volcanoes in the central North Island, like Topor, but I'm here yeah, with the Salsa crew helping them out with the installation. The full Salsa crew includes 11 people, and they're out and about for two and a half weeks trying to fit as many sensors as possible. On this day, two teams of four have been dispatched to fit a sensor in two different locations, while the remaining three people have travelled to Franz Josef, and there they're going to talk to the helicopter companies that will help them in the next phase to reach the more challenging locations. 
The team that I visited is made up of PhD student Olivia, postdoctoral researcher Finn, Ash Matheson, who's just about to start her master's in geophysics, and the project co-leader, Professor John Townend, who explains to me how it's going to work. So we'll carry all our gear up, we'll start digging the holes and building the fence and building the solar panel setup. And once that's underway, then we'll start connecting some of the more electronic bits. And if all goes according to plan, we, you know, we'll take three or maybe four hours, but it just depends how easy it is to dig the hole, which is often the, the really the challenging challenge. bit. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of muscle and there's a lot of stones around here, as you'll see. So why don't we carry our gear up? Well, maybe, Finn, if you want to take the lead and we'll find a spot and then... Uh, yeah, we can their ideal site would have a bit of soil sitting over hard bedrock so that they could dig the sensor in to connect well with this rock. And it would also be away from noise sources such as rivers and roads. And it would have a clear view of the sky for the solar panel. And at the more remote sites, it would have an open level landing site for a helicopter. They know they won't find their idyllic spot in each place so they will work with what they have. After a quick recce, they settle on a spot and the team get to work. Finn and John start undigging the hole that the sensor will go in, while Ash and Olivia start setting up the solar panel with a very practised air. But yeah, we had to test all of them because if you come out here with one that does not fit together, bit of an issue. <laughs> so we had to test all of them in a warehouse. What you were up to in Hokitika? Yeah. Yeah, mostly. Um, yeah, I mean, right now we're in farmland, so it's pretty easy to go and get some iron spare bolts or anything. But when we are doing a helicopter site, there's just no way we can go back. Yeah. yeah. You want everything to be yeah. tested and have spare yeah. And yeah. content. Yeah, everything. Mm. So, what's the solar panel going to power? Uh, the battery. Yeah, it recharges the battery so that it can stay out here longer than <laughs> however long a battery lasts for. Uh, would you mind passing me one of those ones? That ideal scenario for the sensor would be that it is sitting nice and flat on bedrock, so it would feel every movement. But the team have to adapt to the conditions they have, and they have a setup worked out to get the sensor nicely orientated and to keep it protected. Okay, I'll show you what the, what the system's going to be. So the bottom of the hole will have sand on it. The sand will have a paving stone, just like from you know, the hardware st store embedded in it. And then around that, we'll have this bucket, which is a bucket with a bottom cut out of it, and a slot here for the cable to come out. Is that uh, a bespoke design? It's um, something we're <laughs> intending to patent when we get around to it, but um, it'll get damp in there, but we just try and prevent any water from dripping on the thing. All the connections will be waterproofed and we use connectors which are as watertight as they can be and then surrounded by waterproof tape but we just try and pre prevent any water and or rock landing on the sensor once it's in there i mean it's basically just just a little vault it's not like a, a permanent vault where you'd actually make a concrete pad and put brickwork around it and so on but this is pretty good for our purposes we get good results out of this it is something we have worked on for a little while so the idea with Digging the hole and putting the sand and the paving stone and then putting the seismometer within the hole is that it's in the ground, it's touching the ground, it's flat on the ground, it's, it's and so it's flat. feeling every movement. Yeah, it's, so the uh, paving stone should be as nicely bedded into the sand and, and therefore 
immobile as possible and as level as possible. But in particular, we want the paving stone to be level, and then the sensor on top of that will be levelled with its um, levelling feet in, in the bubble. And, and it's also pointing north, because the sensor has three channels. It, it records in three directions at once. One is up and down, and then there are two horizontal channels, and we orient it so that one is pointing north and one is pointing east, um, for simplicity. And that means that when we're recording seismic waves, we you know we know not just when the seismic wave arrives and so on, but what its shape is and what direction it's coming from and that sort of thing. So it's a combination of being firm and level and oriented the right way. <laughs> These seismic sensors are on free loan from an organisation called Pascal. In exchange, the team will share the data they collect. John shows me one of the sensors. Though, to be honest, from the outside, there's not much to see. It's basically just a cylinder, a metal cylinder, that sits on three feet. We've got little levelling wheels there. The cap on the top here hides the um, connection point, so the cable will connect there. There's a north arrow so we can get everything pointing the right way and a little levelling bubble. And in here are three little units which are oriented so that they are sensitive to vibration in the three orthogonal directions. And that means we can look at waves arriving from all directions and, and work out some of their characteristics. So it's reasonably heavy, but the actual unit, the little sensors themselves, are very, very fragile. So until everything is neat and tidy in the hole and it's totally level and we're convinced it's not uh, going to be damaged by us moving around and so on, we leave it locked and then we'll gradually unlock it and then test that it's working. And only after that will we fill in the hole, otherwise there could be a lot of extra digging. I've seen a simple seismometer before. It looks like a slinky or a spring with a magnet on the bottom set up to move through a coil of wire when the earth, and therefore the slinky, moved. And as the magnet moves through the coil of wire, it creates a current. Measuring the strength of this current then tells you how much the earth has moved. For these sensors, it's the same basic principle, says John. These sensors are a bit more sophisticated than that, but basically, fundamentally, that's what they are. They have systems for measuring the voltage very precisely that's coming out. So unlike in the past where you might have you know, had a revolving paper drum and a stylus making a, mm. a, a scribble on it, now we are simply measuring a voltage. And there are electronics in there that provide the damping to, so that when you shake it with a seismic wave, it records the ground motion, well, it records the motion of the magnet, which we convert into ground motion, but it doesn't just keep on oscillating upwards and downwards forever. So it's like shock absorbers on a car. You need it to record the motion and then damp it out. And so that's provided by the electronics and so on. There are other sorts of sensors for different purposes, but these ones are called broadband because they record a, a very broad range of frequencies. This capacity of these sensors to pick up many frequencies is key for what John and the team want to do. When this system is all up and running, we'll be focusing in this study on a couple of things. One of them is basically just the background hum provided by the Earth. So if you were to listen with a seismometer to the noise in the Earth, you'd discover that there's quite a lot of noise that's generated basically by ocean waves of various types of waves hitting the coastline and interacting with the continental shelf and so on. And that generates this sort of incoherent noise in the Earth. And one of the things we're trying to do is to record that noise. If you were to just look at it, you'd say, well, that's just noise. But actually, by comparing the records from one seismometer and another, we can extract the coherent bits. And that enables us to do some really interesting things to understand how waves are propagating between those two different points. If we have a seismometer over there and a seismometer 10 kilometres away, we record the noise and using a mathematical process, we extract the coherent signals going between them. 
Now, what we could do is take the data from this seismometer and the data, let's say, from Christchurch, and do the same thing. And that tells us about the propagation of waves from this spot to Christchurch. So in this project, what we're doing is we're installing seismometers every 10 kilometres along the whole Alpine Fault, and then we'll, let's say, take Christchurch or Dunedin or wherever you like, and we'll establish what slip on the fault at any particular point would generate in terms of seismic waves in, in Christchurch. Because a big earthquake is a whole series of points on the fault slipping one after the other. So in this process we are working out the relationship between slip on any one point and the waves that you would feel further afield. And that's one of the things we're trying to do. It's called ambient noise analysis and it, it's a very powerful technique for extracting information about the earth without having to wait around for earthquakes. So this is the relationship between different points along the fault line and then wider out points. Yeah, so we know that the Alpine Fault produces big earthquakes, you know, something like every 260-odd years. And it's not periodic, it doesn't do it every 260 years, but it's, uh, compared to other faults elsewhere, it's remarkably regular. And the last earthquake was in 1717 AD, so you know, about 300 and a bit years ago. So we, we're sure that this fault is late in its typical cycle. But we don't know what an earthquake on this fault will really look like because the last one wasn't recorded in oral or written history. So in order to work out what sort of ground motions an alpine fault rupture might create, we need to somehow synthesize them ahead of time. And you can do that in two ways. You can use very sophisticated models of seismic wave propagation and you can say, let's assume the earthquake ruptures like this. And we're going to synthesize and calculate how the seismic waves radiate out through the whole country. And that's a very important component of trying to figure out what an Alpine Fault earthquake will do. But you can't consider lots and lots of different scenarios because it's very, very computationally intensive. That's one avenue you need to go down to work out the effects of an Alpine Fault earthquake. Assume what's going to happen for a limited number of cases and then see what the far-field ground motions are like. But the other technique is what we're doing, which is to use this noise-based method, which using this, uh, this trick of extracting the coherent noise, we can calculate the far-field ground motions and then synthesize hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of different earthquake scenarios. So we don't need to know how the seismic wave gets from here to Christchurch. We've actually recorded that without having to compute it. So it's a different way around this problem. One of them, you can calculate with great accuracy and precision what the ground motions are for a very limited number of scenarios. And in our case, we can consider many, many more scenarios, but we can only do that where we have seismometers. So we don't have that degree of freedom of, of just saying we're going to calculate it at some arbitrary spot. So we're doing all that sort of work, and we'll also be recording all the little earthquakes which go on all the time. When I asked about being able to see the ground motion move along the sensor array... John is quick to point out that this is not a warning system. They won't be getting this information in real time. The plan is that these sensors will be in place for a total of 18 months, and every six months the team will return to check on the sensors, extract the data, and start to run analysis on it. These are, of course, not the only sensors along the Alpine Fault. GeoNet have a network of sensors in the area that do collect live data. And there is already an existing Victoria University of Wellington network here, which researchers have been using to look at how the fault behaves differently in different areas along its length. Because although it looks very neat in satellite pictures, when you zoom in, things get more complicated. 
from space it is a pretty straight sort of line and that's what we call the plate boundary but as you get closer and closer as you come down in altitude you would see that it's segmented into bits which are moving in a, um, a sort of horizontal sense and other bits which are moving in a more vertical sense depending on the orientation of individual segments of the fault and there are some intriguing aspects about the fault's shape its geometry that we don't really understand so based on all sorts of really detailed paleoseismic work other scientists have worked out the history of big earthquakes going back several thousand years and what they see is that there are certain segments of the fault that tend to rupture preferentially there's sort of a southern segment and a central segment and northern segment and uh, they sometimes rupture together sometimes they rupture individually sometimes in pairs sometimes the whole lot go why sometimes you get one segment rupturing and sometimes the earthquake just goes right right through and does two or three is something we don't really understand and it may have something to do with the fault's large-scale structure under the ground. There may be contortions in it, changes in uh, its geometry that make it easy for ruptures uh, to rupture, let's say, in one direction and not the other. Or sometimes the fault is stressed in such a way that an earthquake can rupture through it without noticing a bend, but other times it gets impeded. We really don't understand that. And a colleague of ours, Emily Warren-Smith, is, is actually working on that very question using networks which are deployed at those transitions to try and work out what is it about those segments of the fault that means that sometimes they let earthquakes through and sometimes they block them. And so, yeah, in order to understand what happens during an earthquake, which might only take a few tens or hundreds of seconds, and how that relates to the decades or centuries of, of stress build-up beforehand is, is a complicated problem. So we've got lots of different groups working on different aspects of that and trying to come up with an integrated way of understanding what governs the, the rupture pattern in the next earthquake. Because we know they happen frequently, we, we know that the last one was quite a long time ago in, in relation to its, its average time between earthquakes, but we really don't know anything about where the earthquakes start, which way they rupture, how deep they go, how fast they rupture, and those sort of parameters will affect the ground shaking in the central and southern New Zealand. What is distinctive about this new salsa string of sensors is a capacity to detect the lower frequencies and the sensor's alignment along the fault. They are set up to detect the ambient seismic field, this background hum of the plates that gives you information about how energy travels across them. 2006 was the first New Zealand study of this sort of thing and it had only really been done internationally a year or two before that. And the, the sort of breakthrough was realising that when you're recording seismic data like this for 18 months, most of what will go into that data log is, is not records of earthquakes. It's mostly this noise field. And so recognising that we could extract useful information from it was really quite exciting. And so in the last 10 or 15 years, people have been you know, taking noise records from all sorts of different configurations, different parts of the world, different separations, and extracting useful information either about, um, as we're doing here, about the propagation of big earthquakes, or about the structure of the earth. You can use a similar technique to, to build up, as, as Finn's doing in the central North Island, you can build up a tomographic image of the subsurface. And so all that is information that previously we would have tried to either not record or tried to remove in order to study the less frequent little earthquakes mm -hmm. or big earthquakes. But actually it's really helpful information. Yeah. So you have to you have to use a lot more of it. You know, the noise, um, in order to get a coherent picture, you need to take hours or days or weeks of noise and, and add it in a sensible way. But you can. We just record for 18 months and we'll be able to build up a very 
complete picture of the way the seismic waves are propagating out from the Alpine Fault. But first they have to install the array, one sensor at a time. With the whole dog, Finn is preparing a box with the electrical components that will sit under the solar panel. So we have the, um, the digitizer, which is kind of the hub for everything. So everything connects to that, including the power, um, which obviously comes from the solar panel into the, the battery. And then this is just a, a power regulator here. So then this digitizer, then we connect it to the sensor ultimately. So it, re it receives the data. And then this um, is called a baler. And this is essentially a 20-year-old USB stick. Um, so it's a huge, big hard drive that the data logger is constantly sending the data to. And so when we come back in six months' time, that's the thing that will have all our data. And we'll download, we'll actually swap it out for another one and then download that data, and that's what we're actually interested in. Ash is having a go at putting the sensor Just in the hole and lining up its orientation. I've got an in yep. brass thing. And no. So you're learning to do all the different parts yeah. of the installation? Yeah, it's good. We're all, there's a whole bunch of us. We're all making sure we learn how to do everything. So I guess in the future we'll know. And also to share out some of the, some of the harder jobs or the more complicated things. And will you also be working on Salsa for your masters? No, no. I'm doing a, an EQC project where I'll be doing a joint finite fault inversion which is where we use uh, earthquake data and uh, GPS data to invert it to try and find the source parameters of an earthquake. So rather than using the data to learn things about the world, we're trying to learn specifically what caused the earthquake. Okay. And how did you get roped into this then? <laughs> Digging holes and building fences? Uh, it's, it's, very, it's very good. Uh, they try to make all the seismology students do a bit of field work so that you can appreciate where the data comes from. But also, this is really fun. <laughs> I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. <laughs> it's nice to get away from a computer or a whiteboard from the textbooks. As you say, though, it's kind of important to see where the data is coming from as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. And especially to see where errors in the data can come from, so that when you're working with it, you can appreciate that it's not all going to be 100% accurate. You may have to adjust things and work with things. This is particularly important for Olivia, who will be working with the Salsa data for her PhD research. What I will be using it for is to look for a specific type of earthquakes. These are called um, very low frequency earthquakes. And I will also continue um, doing some works on low frequency earthquakes. So there has been some low frequency earthquakes uh, recorded um, south of where we are now, more on the south part of the fault. And there's already a catalogue, so I'm going to be working on just improving the catalogue and looking for more of those type of earthquakes. For you then, will you get data after six months and work on that and then get another set of data at the end of this and also work on that? Is that the plan? Yeah, well, right now I'm working with the data we have from the stations that are already here and also from Geonet stations. There are not so many, but uh, I'm also working with that. So, um, so we can have like an idea of what we are going to encounter. And also, we as seismologists, we code a lot. <laughs> we do a lot of programming. 
and as Ash said, um, we're often just working on a computer, so it's nice to get out. But we write code, run that code, then another one, then another one. And it's nice to uh, just test that process in some data, and then we can just like run that process in the whole new data that we got. Back to the task at hand, so that Olivia does have that data in six months' time. Now that the sensor is in the hole, correctly orientated, perfectly level, Olivia has been tasked with connecting it and then releasing the sensor to see whether the masses are correctly calibrated. So we connected the sensor, check, check that the masses are leveled. We needed to do a centering this time, but now they are leveled. We also checked that we the recorder, recorder was getting data from the digitalizer. We did a small stump test, which was just doing like that's I don't know how stamping on the ground uh, yeah. next to the yeah stamping on the ground next to the sensor, and we were able to see uh, these stumps on the three channels of the sensor. And once we checked everything was working perfectly, we are now filling the hole like uh, around the bucket with the dirt that we took out. Um, and once the hole is filled, we will check again how are the masses. Um, if it's needed, we will level it. And yeah, that will be it for today. We will pick up like all the uh, tools that we have lying around and we'll come back in six months. Yeah. The final steps involve setting up the livestock proof fence, taping an explanation sign to the top of the box with the electronics in it, and that last stomp test to check that all is still good with the sensor. Ready. With that, the team packs up and heads away. For two weeks after my visit, the team went out every day and continued to deploy sensors. In the end, they fitted 31 new salsa sites and serviced 20 existing sites. They'll be back in six months to collect the data that they hope will allow them to listen in to the hum of the Alpine Fault. Thanks to Professor John Townend, Olivia Peter-Slim, Ash Matheson and Dr Finn Isley-Kemp. All from the School of Geography, Environment and Earth Science at Tehera Nawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. Thanks to Liz Garten for her editing help with this episode. Tim Watkin is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'll share some pictures from the seismic sensor installation and some links to find out more. You'll also be able to listen to our extensive back catalogue of episodes there, including exploring our earthquake episode collection. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Great new RNZ podcasts are being launched all the time. Click on the Podcasts and Series tab to explore them. I can recommend one of the latest releases, Let's Be Transparent, where Joseph Stockenhausen explores the ups and downs of gender transition with the help of experts, others with lived experience, 
and his mum. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.